Hello, my name's Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times is what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, the return of the week in politics and what a week it's been. The Bank of England forced into a £65 billion intervention to head off a pensions crisis triggered by new Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng's financial statement, which proposed a 5p in the pound cut in the top rate of income tax funded by massive borrowing. The markets were spooked and a round of local radio interviews with Liz Truss to retrieve the situation was generally regarded as being not so much a car crash as a multi-vehicle pile-up. Meanwhile, off the back of the party conference that proposed a publicly owned green energy company, Labour has amassed a 33-point lead in the polls. We'll be hearing from Sam Bright, Byline Times Investigations Editor and the author of Fortress London, why we need to save the country from its capital, and Adam Bienkoff, Byline Times Westminster correspondent. Before that, just a reminder, though, that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times, our wonderful monthly newspaper edited by Hardeep Matharu, which has exclusive content that you cannot read online. The great thing about the Byline Times is there's no oligarch or millionaire backer telling us what to say. We can report without fear or favour because our funding comes from ordinary subscribers, people like you. So do please subscribe, if you can, to the Byline Times. And thanks to those of you who have already done so. You get more details over at our website, bylinetimes.com. That's at bylinetimes.com. I'll start with Adam Bienkoff. Uh, Welcome, Adam. Welcome, Sam. But Adam, (laughs) as I say at the top, what a week it's been. It's been incredible, isn't it? I mean... First impressions really matter in politics. And what their first impression Liz Truss has made in her first few weeks, you know, in the space of just less than a month, she's made a series of deeply unpopular tax cuts for the wealthiest people in the country. She's created the entire UK economy, threatened the collapse of UK pension funds. And now her party are 30 points plus behind in the opinion polls and facing what some Conservative MPs are describing now as a potential extinction level event at the next general election. And it's very hard now to see, number one, how they're going to get out of this mess. Liz Trust yesterday insisting that she's going to carry on and she's, there's going to be no U-turn. Front page of the Daily Mail today, the lady is not for turning. And um, it's also hard to see how her party recovers when her own ratings and the ratings of her party are so catastrophically damaged in just the first few weeks of her premiership. It took Boris Johnson almost three years for his government to fall apart. It seems to have been happening in a matter of days and weeks under this trust. And the round of local radio interviews, presumably pre-arranged, I know from my time in local radio, ahead of the party conferences, a senior figure, sometimes the leader, would be wheeled out to do their eight-minute slot on local radio, expecting perhaps generally a light ride. But Liz Trust did not get that from, certainly from a number of the local radio presenters who interviewed her. No, I mean, you can see the logic behind them doing that. I mean, Liz Trust has, since the uh, quasi Quateng's statement last week, she's sort of disappeared off the face of the earth, haven't heard from her, no real public statements. She may have thought local radio interviews, five minutes each, relatively junior in industry presenters surely I can't get too much of a rough ride in fact it was the opposite I think she got a far rougher ride than she would normally do on the Today programme or or elsewhere in large part I think because local radio presenters don't rely on the sort of access that national presenters and many lobby journalists do rely upon so they're free to take sort of bigger punches and 
speak more on behalf of their listeners than perhaps some of the more well-known presenters nationally are able to do. And Sam, you've written for Byline Times this week at bylinetimes.com. The iceberg heading straight towards the government is the housing market crash. Now, the financial statement, often dubbed a mini budget by Quasi Kwarteng, was in part anyway designed to encourage growth of the housing market, to get things moving again. That's why we saw a significant reduction in stamp duty, a raising of the threshold at which stamp duty would be paid, for example. But the net result of the financial statements is that people who have mortgages are going to have to pay significantly higher amounts of money for them. Yeah, I'd I'd suggest that if you do repossessions, you'll certainly see a boom in the next few months. But the housing market as a whole, I think, will, you know, it looks like it's going to suffer, as, as you say. This is basically caused by the government pumping extra heat into the economy, which will cause the Bank of England to react even more harshly with regards to interest rates and put them up higher and more quickly than they otherwise would have done to try and curb inflation. Um, And as a result, the cost of borrowing will go up for the government and it will go up for households as well. So we risk a situation that looks very similar. I'm not saying it will be exactly the same, but looks similar to 2008, where Lots of people have you know, taken out mortgages over the past 12 years because interest rates have been fairly low, have been very low, in fact, historically low for, for a long period. And now of wage stagnation as well, they simply won't be able to afford the repayments. They might have to default on that debt. The banks might have to step in. And as a result, we really face, and we spoke to a few experts on this, and all of them said that the way in which this plan unravels for Liz Truss in the sort of medium term is a housing market crash. When people recall Black Wednesday, the decline of sterling under the then-Chancellor Norman Lamont, that's regarded as a day of infamy in the British economy. The day when the Bank of England said it had to intervene and intervene to the tune of £65 billion because there was, quote, a material risk to UK financial stability, that has to rank alongside that, doesn't it? I mean, it is hard to imagine a Labour Chancellor Mm. surviving that kind of damning verdict from the Bank of England. Oh, definitely. And something that we've spoken about a lot at Byline Times is how the media sustains, sort of normalises this sense of crisis, like Adam was mentioning, Some of the right-wing, the more visceral right-wing papers have been parroting Truss's... I was going to call her Trump for a second, and it seems quite apt, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Truss's line that she's not for turning, she's the Iron Lady. These market forces are all Remainers. You know, the city traders that they removed the bonuses for just a fortnight ago, they're actually, you know, the enemies within. And it's just bizarre, like you say, if this was... Rachel Rees, for example, those papers would be shouting for her head and trying to topple the government effectively. And it just seems as though they're, they're sustaining this, this grand delusion that trust can, can ride this out when the whole of the population knows, as we've seen through the polls, that this is a disaster. The lady is not for turning, of course, echoing one of Margaret Thatcher's famous quotes, or actually I think it's a slight misquote, but nevertheless, clearly Liz Truss is seeking to channel her inner Margaret Thatcher. Supportive newspapers have picked up on that, as you say. The Iron Lady has been invoked. But one thing Margaret Thatcher believed in 
was balancing the books, was in a in sound money. And I'm just struggling to get my head around the economic logic of stimulating the economy by reducing higher rate tax for high earners, assuming that works, and opinion is very much against the notion that that would work from all the economists I've spoken to, but if that works, it pumps more money into an economy where the Bank of England is already struggling to deal with inflation. So if it works, it causes more problems for the economy. Well, that's exactly what the IMF said earlier this week. They said, we don't recommend large and untargeted fiscal packages, i.e. what the government's announced at this juncture, as it is important that fiscal policy does not work at cross-purposes to monetary policy, monetary policy being essentially what the Bank of England is responsible for. So what they're saying is that the government's moving in one direction, which will cause the Bank of England to move in exactly the opposite direction, thereby not just negating what the government might do, but creating additional economic problems as a result of those crossed wires. I mean, I'm interested, Adam, in in what you think about, you know, it it looks like Truss and Kwarteng are going to have to try to balance the books, but they're doing Mm. that weeks after having announced a fiscal package, which is deeply unpopular, and surely the state spending cuts will be deeply unpopular. Like, how did they, how did they think that that was going to be a politically savvy move to sort of stagger this budget over like weeks and months? Well, yeah, I mean it's bizarre, and it, it, I mean they called it a mini budget. It was actually a half budget because it only contained the, the, these uh, tax cuts, effectively sp- spending measures, but it didn't say explain how they're going to get the growth that they claimed they were going to get. And actually, on on the day of the budget, I had a briefing with. Quasi Quateng's team, and I directly asked them, "Why didn't you commission an OBR report into this? Why that's the opposite claiming, budget responsibility? Yeah, why are you claiming that this is going to lead to two point five percent growth over the medium to long term when you're not providing any evidence for it? Why can't we see the open R numbers, which normally accompany budget statements?" And his spokesman said to me, "Oh, but it would have taken." 11 weeks for this to, to come out. So we just had to get this out now. It's an emergency situation. We now know that's a completely false, a completely complete lie. Uh, the OBR has said in the statement to MPs yesterday that they were more than able to have come out with an assessment at the same time as quasi Kwarteng statement. But, you know, there's this, this whole uh, strategy by, by Trust and her refusal to go back on it. It's, in business, there's known as the sunk cost fallacy where you pursue a failed course of action it fails and you carry on with that course of action anyway because you believe you've already spent too much time money and effort into it <laughs> well, you know trust david frost and her fellow travers in the in think, think tanks like the iea you know they spent their entire careers telling people that if only a government pursued this kind of hard right libertarian economics then uk growth would surge and everyone would be wealthier and all, and all would be well well now finally we have a government which has actually tried this agenda they've been pushed, spent their lives telling people to, to push and it's been a complete disaster. It's created the economy and, you know, the Conservatives look like they're heading out of government, potentially being, being wiped out as a going concern as a, a party. So the, the obvious thing to do at that point, we would say, well, look, this has clearly been a massive error. We've got this wrong. We need to row back. But I, I really don't think that's what we're going to see. I think we're going to see more doubling down it because of this kind of sunk cost fallacy that if we've come this far, we're going to have to try and make 
the book's balance. And unfortunately, I think how they're going to do that is by slashing benefits for people. We, um, the chance that, yes, they refuse to rule that out, uh, or at least not raising them in line with inflation, which is effectively a real terms cut for people, and also slashing public services. So I think we are going to be heading for austerity mark two. Really, what they should be doing is saying that we've made a mistake, we need to row back, we need to stabilise the economy, we can't afford these tax cuts. So we're going to have this bizarre situation where they're going to carry on with these unpopular and economically damaging and reckless tax cuts at the same time as slashing benefits and public services for the poorest people in the country and and people on, on middle incomes. And what is the end game of that? The end game is is also going to be hugely unpopular and it's also going to further damage economic growth. So it doesn't help the government, but I can't really see a way out of it for them as long as Liz Truss remains prime minister. It does seem like they're in a sort of checkmate scenario. I can't see a way out either for the economy or for the Conservatives at the next general election. And Sam, the hard right ideologues that Adam refers to, many of them anyway, are concentrated on an address in London, 55 Tufton Street. I know that's an address that you've written about for many years at Byline Times. And belatedly, it seems that the mainstream media, including the BBC and Sky News, are cottoning on to the fact that there are a number of these groups, often unaccountable, the sourcing of funding opaque, but these hard right ideologues are the people driving the economic policy and other policies of Liz Truss's government. Exactly. I mean, it's it's ironic you say, Adrian, that the that the mainstream press is now cottoning onto this. But a lot of these groups have actually left Tufton Street now because um, the high watermark for 55 Tufton Street was around you know 2016 to 2018. And then journalists like me and people at Open Democracy, Peter Gagan's done some fantastic work on this, started using Tufton Street as a pejorative term. And so they thought, oh, that's not looking too great for us. So then they scooted around the corner to other addresses. But anyway, the Tufton Street network is a very easy way of thinking of these groups in the same way that we think of journalists as part of Fleet Street, even though they don't they don't inhabit Fleet Street anymore. So basically, yes, you're right. These are libertarian groups. They believe in so-called free market economics. So that means slashing the size of the state, as we're expecting the government to do imminently in the form of renewed age of austerity and also low taxes, particularly for what they would call wealth creators, so the richest individuals and corporations. There are five Tufton Street alumni within Truss's immediate circle of advisors, including her chief economics advisor, uh, Matthew Sinclair, who was a senior member of the Taxpayers Alliance, which is uh, one of these notorious Tufton Street groups founded by Matthew Elliott, who also was the ran the, the Brexit campaign, the Vote Leave campaign. So yeah, Truss is deeply embedded within this mindset, and she has been for years. Many people have said that Truss is a political chameleon, but really since she became an MP in 2010, she's forged a very close symbiotic alliance with this Tufton Street mindset and these Tufton Street groups. She founded the the Free Enterprise Group of Conservative MPs in alliance with the Institute of Economic Affairs, which is another one of these Tufton Street groups, when she was a, a young MP. Mark Littlewood, that runs the IEA, has said that he's not seen an MP more than Liz Truss 
over the past 12 years. And um, I think it's telling that Tim Montgomery, a former Downing Street advisor, has now said that Britain is the laboratory of these Tufton Street groups. They are definitely the ideological engine room of this government. Yes. And it seemed to me that part of the purpose of Kwasi Kwarteng's first financial statements in tandem with Liz Truss was to lay down a marker to say, this is what we believe in. This is what kind of government we're going to be. We're going to be economically liberal, as they would describe it. We're not going to be concerned about equality and inequality. The Guardian has reported that Therese Coffey has pulled back from publishing a Department of Health report into tackling health inequality. There have been various outriders of the government saying that inequality doesn't matter. And the idea of giving the wealth creators, as they would call them, the wealthiest people in society, tax breaks, greater tax breaks than those lower down the economic tree would all seem to me to suggest that this is about saying this is who we are, announcing themselves, as it were, on the world stage. Yeah, definitely. I find it, I mean, you all have had the same reaction as I have, Adrian, because we were both part of the podcast, your podcast, uh, last week called A Budget for the, for the Rich, in which we had two economists on who said, this is pretty much definitively not how you create economic growth, that even the IMF, which has been labelled as a Remainer organisation by some Conservatives in recent days, the IMF is in reality a pretty neoliberal right-wing organisation, just ask Greece. And yet the IMF has said in, in recent years that inequality actively damages economic growth. And that makes logical sense. If the main body of the British economy if millions of people don't have pounds in their pockets through austerity, through wage stagnation, they're not going to spend it and the economy is not going to surge forwards. Um, so they're betting the house, the Conservatives, on an ideology that has relatively little economic evidence behind it, um, but that is essentially backed by highly ideological groups that we don't know exactly where their funding has come from, but what we do know is that, and from various investigations over a number of years, is that they have received funding from big corporations which would benefit from these sort of tax cuts. Um, and we've seen the example in the United States where lots of right-wing billionaires have essentially rigged the playing field by germinating a range of academic institutions, of think tanks, of lobbying groups, in order to pull political conversation towards the right in a more libertarian direction, towards what's called the Tea Party movement. And it seems that this is happening exactly um, in parallel in the UK as well. And we've seen the effects of it over the past couple of weeks. So, Adam, we're talking about an ideology of low tax, low regulation. The shorthand for it is to create a Singapore on Thames in the UK. People who know about Singapore tell me actually there's far greater regulation than yes. that title implies. But this is the shorthand, that Britain will be much less regulated than our neighbours in the EU, that it will be lower taxed, and the more money you earn, the more of it you'll be able to keep. One of the problems of that, it seems to me, is that it's predicated on the idea of free global trade, 
we have just, as a result of the actions of these same people who were pro-leave, erected barriers to mm. our closest neighbours. Well, exactly. And it all comes, as you say, back to Brexit. And this budget and the, the effects from it are really, in some ways, the kind of logical endpoint of the whole Brexit process. Once you accept, as the Conservative Party did accept, that they wanted to do something which is at odds with economic growth, which is cutting connections with our closest trading partners, then once that link has been broken, it's very easy to then carry on down that road and say, well, yes, we, as with Brexit, as with everything else, it doesn't matter if the civil service say, no, this is going to wreck the, the economy. It doesn't matter if the IMF warn against this. What do they know? The ends justify the means. And the ends is creating a low-tax, low-regulation economy akin, as you say, to sort of Singapore on, on Thames. But ultimately, I don't think it's going to – I think they're, they're going to find out that it, it doesn't have the the effect that they've long been telling us it is going to have, which is the, re, the reason the that we've had this reaction from the markets isn't just because of the huge amounts of borrowing that the government has done. Uh, the government has borrowed lots of money uh, for the for COVID as well, and it didn't have that this effect. The reason it had this effect is because the markets didn't believe what the government was saying, which is that this borrowing and these to fund tax cuts was going to lead to the growth they're saying it would. And that's also the reason why they didn't commission the Office of Budget Responsibility to do those assessments, because the OBR would also have said that this isn't going to lead to the sort of growth that you're saying it's going to have. So we're going to have a low growth, but low regulation, a low trade economy. Um, so we have all the, all the worst aspects of it. But we're not actually going to get the benefit that they promised that we would that would come alongside that, which ultimately is going to end up with us all being poorer. And it's also going to end up with the government becoming ever more unpopular, as we're seeing in, in the polls yesterday. And Adam, you've been at the Labour Party conference in Liverpool. We spoke ahead of that with Simon Fletcher, who was a former advisor to Keir Starmer, to Jeremy Corbyn, to Ed Miliband. And his thesis was that Labour can't just sit back and allow the Conservatives to self-destruct. They've got to have a big idea and be proactive. There is an argument that, given the way the Conservatives are behaving at the moment, sitting back and letting them de self-destruct might actually be a, a, a sensible idea. I saw the quote the other day that uh, Napoleon said, apparently, never interrupt an enemy while he's making a mistake. But at the Labour Party conference, Labour did come out with this idea of the great British energy company, publicly owned green energy. Is that the kind of big idea, you think, that's going to propel Starmer into Downing Street? Well, I think it is. And, you know, there is that old old saying that oppositions don't win elections, governments lose them. I think that is since the the start of this crisis and since the Labour conference. It's not just that there has been a collapse in support for the Prime Minister, which there clearly has been, but also there is real switching going on between the Conservatives and Labour and real surge in support for Labour and for Keir Starmer as leader. And that's not just about Truss and her government positions collapsing and, and the economy affecting people's own finances, which obviously that is, that is obviously a massive part of what we're seeing in the polls. But it's also because Labour did have an incredibly united conference. I've, I've been going to conferences since the Ed Miliband era, and this was far and away the most united, most well-organised, most co cohesive conference that I've seen over that period. And also there were real ideas 
coming out of that conference. Keir Starmer's speech had substantive ideas in it. You mentioned about the the, the new nationalised energy company, but also green jobs, there's a new programme of council house building. There was real substantive ideas in it and devolution as well. I was, I was speaking in, at one fringe to their levelling up, shadow levelling up secretary, Lisa Nandy, and she was talking about massive new powers that she wants to give to elected mayors around the country and other regional leaders, including tax raising powers. These are real big ideas that actually will have concrete effects on people's lives. So Labour, I think, for a long time under Keir Starmer, he took a kind of caution first approach to politics. He didn't want to rock the boat and, you know, don't interrupt your enemy and all of that, all of that, as as you suggest. But I think because of the situation the Conservatives are in, because they spent the summer talking to themselves, because they ousted Boris Johnson, they've replaced her with a prime minister who is in many ways even worse. I think it's kind of freed the hand of Keir Starmer and the Labour Party to kind of open up their position now. And you're seeing a new confidence, I think, with Keir Starmer and with the his shadow cabinet. They believe for the first time that they can actually win the next general election. I mean, every conference I've been to, you know, they will say, oh, here's the new Prime Minister Ed Miliband, here, you know, here's the new Prime Minister Jeremy Corbyn. You never really got a sense that they actually believed it. This was the first time I've been to one of these where, where it was clear they do actually believe it. And the polls would suggest that they're they're right to do so. And part of that is, of course, to do with the, the government's performance and this trust performance. But part of it is also, you know, you make your own luck in politics. And yes, Keir Starmer has been overly cautious over the years, but now he is starting to be more effective in his attacks against the government. And he's also starting to come out with some ideas which are really popular. The polling on the nationalised energy company is really good for Labour. It's popular. And people can see that privatised industries in, in the UK haven't worked. They can see it with energy companies and their, their bills, and they can also see it with water companies, although Labour aren't, aren't proposing to take over water companies. But the argument is shifting in Labour's position. And because the Conservatives and the government have gone so drifted so far over to the right on economics and, and other issues, it has kind of freed up the centre ground and the centre-left for Labour to step in. And I think that's what we saw at this conference. And I think it is clearly, as the polls suggest, a winning position for Labour to be in. Sam, your book, Fortress London, focuses on the inequalities of the United Kingdom. Levelling up was one of the bywords of the Boris Johnson government, but we now have a Conservative government that is happy once again to talk about inequality. The political difficulty for the Conservatives is that talk of levelling up, if not the delivery, was partly what delivered the red wall seats to them, those Labour heartlands in the industrial or post-industrial Midlands and the North. Where is levelling up now? I'd say it's dead in the water. Any sort of sense that the government believes in this has been boiled down to these, I think they're called investment zones, or they're, they're essentially low tax low regulation zones across the country that the Chancellor announced in his mini budget. People have called these essentially offshore sites within the UK. Um, Firms will be able to relocate there and they'll get certain tax breaks, even more tax breaks than is already being promised by the government. But in terms of infrastructure, what we're seeing, which is obviously one of the big features of levelling up, you know, ensuring that our transport system is built for the 21st century, ensuring that places are better connected and therefore benefit from agglomeration and can grow economically. Again, we're caught in this inflation bind. So they're attempting to push through planning reform to make it easier to build both housing and big infrastructure projects. 
And yet the cost of delivering these projects due to the, the government's fiscal approach, um, having sort of a sugar rush into the economy, that's going to push inflation up, which is going to make a lot of these projects unaffordable now. And so it's a, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a catch 22. I find it interesting Labour's position on this. It really, it hasn't gone too hard on levelling up. I suspect because for one, they know that the Conservatives are so weak on it now. And perhaps they suspect that if they did concentrate too heavily, like you say, the post-industrial heartlands, that perhaps they might lose seats elsewhere. But yeah, as a, as a grand narrative for what's wrong in Britain and what we need to do to fix it, is um yeah it's non-existent sam thank you very much indeed that's sam bright investigations editor of the byline times thanks also to our westminster correspondent adam bienkoff my name's adrian goldberg you can read both adam and sam at our website at bylinetimes.com if you want to keep him in a job don't forget to subscribe to our wonderful monthly newspaper the byline times and the print edition has content that you will not find online your subscription helps fund that and helps to keep this podcast on the air as well so please if you can head over to bylinetimes.com and find out how to subscribe that's at bylinetimes.com thanks very much indeed for listening we'll see you again soon cheers now bye-bye